Let me see, let me see. Richard. I wanna see. Richard, go see what's agitating Dad. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, where we go see what's agitating Dad in Mad Max Fury Road, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 14, which begins with Corpus Colossus keeping an eye on the situation. And it ends with a Morton Joe entering his vault. So when we left off on Monday, Rictus had just sampled some of the milk coming from these women in this room. And at the top of today's minute, he gives his assessment, which is not really much of an assessment at all. He just sort of nods, looks at his father, and says, Moo. What does he say? Does he... Moo. Okay. 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 Moo. I mean... You were really worried on Monday that we hadn't seen any examples of him being a little simple. No, I think this is an example of him being an asshole. He's being mean. Is he? Yes. He's calling these women cows. That's not kind. Well, I think we also established on Monday that this is how they're seen. Yeah. These are not good people. They are the villains. Right. But I think Joe is looking for some sort of reassurance that this batch is good. and He gets it. Rictus, R- Rictus like, is like, nods his head, kind of holds it up in an approving manner. That's approval. Meanwhile, Corpus is in the back of the room. He's over by his own little balcony with a telescope. And he says, hey, pa. And then Joe goes, huh? And I love that little grunt that Immortan Joe does. But he says, you know about this? And the first thing that popped into my mind was, you better come see this cliche. <laughs> because I watch too much cinema since. But Corpus continues as we shift our focus over to where he is by saying that your produce ain't going to gas town. And I like how matter of fact Corpus is around his father. Like everyone is scared to death of a Morton Joe, but Rictus and Corpus, he's just their father. So they have a bit of a different air about them mm-hmm. when they're dealing with him. And so Corpus can say things like that. Be a little right, snarky. and I can't imagine that anybody else talks to him that way. No, I get the sense that Corpus realizes how intelligent he is and how capable of leading he is. It's just his physical mobility that holds him back in this post-apocalyptic world. And I don't think it holds him back really all that much. He's in the position that he is lucky enough to have the ability to have things that keep him mobile and as healthy as can be Mm -hmm. he is wearing a cannula which is the thing going up his nose which that's the kind of tubing that supplies oxygen Hmm. i have trouble with the idea that he's actually breathing oxygen for one when we see his chair from far away there are no tanks on it there's no tubing running from his chair plus producing pure oxygen and storing it in a tank. I'm not sure they have that technology. So I don't know what he's got hooked up to his face. (laughs) I don't buy it. Well, we might as well get to know Corpus Colossus a bit here. He is played by actor Quentin Kenahan. IMDb lists his top four best known things as Fury Road. His work as a producer on 2006's My Voice. His role as Man on Trolley from Dr. Plunk in 2007 and his role as Van Man in 2004's Thunderstruck, which I think is an ACDC tour video or something like that. But Mm. 
Anyway, Quentin Canahan was born February 27th, 1975 in Box Hill, Victoria, Australia. He died at age 43, October 6th, 2018. Oh, oh, just a few months ago. Yeah, oh, very wow. recent for that one. In the months before he died, he was regularly releasing a podcast that I was subscribed to. He really? called it the QCast. And it was him just interviewing people from the showbiz that he had gotten to know over the years. Oh, that's very cool. So let me read from the IMDb mini bio about him, written by the man himself. So this is more of a IMDb mini auto bio. It says, Quentin Canahan is Australia's most unique celebrity. For many years, he featured on national current affairs programs as he struggled to overcome his disability. Quentin has captured the nation's heart with his wit, humor, and never-say-die attitude. Now, as an adult, he is best known for his hit TV series, Quentin Crashes. He is a young Australian filmmaker who suffers from a rare bone disorder called osteogenesis imperfecta, or brittle bone disease, and has spent most of his 31 years in a wheelchair from which he observes life through the lens of TV cameras. You may notice that he said 31 years, so I think he wrote this a while back. A while ago, yeah. Yeah, but as he mentioned in his mini-bio, he first came to the attention of the public when he was seven years old as the feature of a documentary by Australian journalist Mike Willisey, or Willessey, I don't know, I'm not Australian, but he later was the host of a 10-network television show called Quentin Crashes, and aside from acting, he was also a writer, producer, director, and podcaster, as I mentioned. His YouTube channel is still active. There are over 120 videos on there. A lot of vlogs, some short films and interviews. And in the weeks before his death, he was actually running to be on the Adelaide City Council. So he was quite active. Yeah. One cool thing about him is that he was good friends with Russell Crowe. In fact, I was watching one interview type special about him. And he had a really rough patch in his, I think, 20s or something like that, where he was abusing painkillers and alcohol and stuff like that. And he got a call from his friend Russell Crowe. <laughs> and that helped snap him out of it. Because I think, as he said in the interview, when you get a call from the gladiator, you listen. <laughs> <laughs> he was three foot three inches, making him only the second shortest actor to be in a Mad Max film. That title is still held by Angela Rosito, who was two foot 11 inches. So it's close. Yeah. But Master still wins. So osteogenesis imperfecta, brittle bone disease. If I remember right from the little bio video that I was watching, Quentin was born with, I think, two broken arms, three broken ribs, and a broken leg. And oh. that's how he was born. Oh, wow. The doctors did not give him very good prospects. They basically said he would live maybe a year or two, and that was it. But as I mentioned before, he lived well into his 40s. He was still taken too young because he had a lot to do. He had a lot of aspirations, but he still had a pretty full life. And he wrote a book, which if I was good, I would have found not only the title of the book, but where you could buy it. But he wrote a little biography just about his life and... In it, he kind of takes his parents to task because they put him in a home for special needs children when he was younger. Oh. And so he was really upset with them for that. But at some point, you just kind of have to let go, I guess. The fact that he lived in a wheelchair was never something that he allowed to limit him in any way. He just buckled down and worked around it. And he's always had that dry wit. Him saying your produce ain't going to Gastown, that's kind of a Quentin thing to do. 
there are videos of him as a child getting interviewed by the news guy. And there's one interaction that comes to mind specifically where little kid Quentin is sitting in this chair and the interviewer's asking about his friends that are there at the special needs home and their kids that just don't make it. And so the interviewer, it's kind of a morbid line of questioning, but he's like, what happened to your friends? And little Quentin's like, oh, they probably just go to heaven. And the interviewer says, what do you think heaven is like? And Quentin's like, well, I don't know. I've never been. And then he looks at the interviewer and he says, you'll be there long before I am. <laughs> like he's a cheeky little kid. Yeah. And even as an adult, like the interviewer, is talking to him and he keeps bringing up the fact that Quentin is wheelchair bound and Quentin's like stop bringing up the wheelchair talk to me like I'm a person mm-hmm. like don't see me as a wheelchair see me as a person so he just was a really cool guy and it bums me out that he was taken at only 43 mm-hmm. the doctors that treated him right there at the end they suspect that he died of an asthma attack like he was on oxygen that yeah. nose thing that he's wearing here in the movie he wore that that was that's time. legit. Well, that definitely explains why it's there, but it doesn't necessarily fit into the movie. Right. Like, it's not plausible Lore-wise. in the movie, but it's there anyways because it needed to be. And I'm totally fine with that. So if you want to know more about Osteogenesis Imperfecta from people who actually know what they're talking about, you can visit the Osteogenesis Imperfecta Foundation at OIF.org. It's a charity with a four-star rating from charitynavigator.org. I wanted to make sure I pointed people towards an organization that's reputable. They got a four-star rating. You can trust these folks. Getting back into the minute, though, we rejoin Corpus Colossus by his telescope, and he says that she's gone off-road into hostile territory. And as Joe is looking through the telescope, he's scanning the desert, he finds the warrig, and he just watches it roll, and as he slowly pulls away from the telescope... Rictus is there, and he's like, why would she do that, Dad? What? What? Why would she do that? All right. I'm not ready to say of my own observation, okay, he's simple, but he is starting to make that evident. Yeah. So Joe, I guess, has an epiphany because he suddenly runs off. Yeah. I just, I question this a little bit because did he have reason to suspect that the specific thing was missing that he goes to run to? Given that there are so many reasons why someone would go off-road, go rogue in general, it does seem like a little bit of a stretch that Joe would instantly think, she's taken my wives. But in the comic book, there is a chapter specifically devoted to Furiosa. And before we see her in this movie, her task is to spend time with the wives and protect them from Rictus. Oh. Yeah. Joe needed someone who could basically keep Rictus from getting into the vault and messing around, but also someone that wouldn't mess around in turn. So he couldn't trust one of his regular Imperators. Mm-hmm. He had to put someone specialized. So in the chapter, you get to see Furiosa initially meet the wives, and then over time... Things develop between her and the wives, and then they hatch this cockamamie scheme to get out of there. So I think her close association with the wives is how he's able to think Furiosa's gone off-road. She's doing something as bold as going into enemy territory. Why would she do that? Oh, wait. She was hanging out with the wives. Okay. I better check the vault. I think that's a detail 
to understand this moment, you really need to have read the comics. Otherwise, it kind of doesn't make any sense. Without the context of the comics, it does seem like a bit of a leap, you but also, it happens so quickly. Right. You can also gloss over it because you're right. It is quick. And you can also chalk it up to his paranoia. Throughout the movie, we learn how highly he values these particular possessions. So if you have someone who is acting suspiciously, you're going to worry about your most precious possessions first. So as Joe runs off, he's actually holding an item that I don't think we've seen before. He's got this scepter thing. We don't get a super close look at it right here. It's not a detailed view, but we're establishing early on he's got this item. We're going to see in a much later minute exactly what it's covered. But when it comes back, this is where it was introduced. All right. While Joe is running away, you got Rictus, who is grabbing at the telescope because he wants to see. He wants to see. And Corpus reaches out and grabs Rictus by the chin and stops him from thrashing around. And I like the dynamic between Corpus and Rictus. Rictus is this giant of a man. And Corpus, by all accounts, shouldn't have any sort of sway over him. And yet Rictus listens to Corpus and follows his directions. It was a very brotherly moment. Big brother to little brother. Yeah. And based on this dynamic, I assume and feel like Corpus is the older brother. I don't know off the top of my head how the order goes, because in the comic it lists Scrotus, Rictus, then Corpus. And I would assume that that is in age order. But I guess you could say, even if it's not an actual age ranking, could be an intellectual age ranking. Mm -hmm. A maturity yeah. age ranking. I mean, Nathan Jones is slightly older than Quentin Kenahan. Okay. Yeah, Nathan Jones was 1969, Quentin Kenahan was 1975, so. And chances are they don't have the same mother. Right. So we're not looking at necessarily one being a couple years older than the other one. They could be the same age. Very true. Before we move out of the milking room, I do want to once again bring up the subject of supplemental oxygen. Okay. And while we can't see the tanks that is supplying Corpus, I was looking through the minute one last time, and I did finally, it's right in front of my face, but I did finally notice that Rictus is also wearing a cannula. And he very clearly has a backpack with tanks on it. Yep. So that is very obvious. Those are his O2 tanks. How they create O2 tanks, I haven't the faintest idea. They probably have some sort of engine from a car that does it somehow. They like must. They've rigged it up. Yeah. <laughs> so his is very showy and well explained. I think they are, since Quentin needed the oxygen, maybe they didn't necessarily want his character to have it because it would have made that chair much more clunky yeah. if they had put a similar setup. But since the setup was explained with Rictus, they could just gloss over it with Corpus. I think what they're going for with Joe and his sons is that they all have respiratory issues. Mm -hmm. Either that or they're trying to just breathe cleaner air than everybody else around them. I wonder if it's not necessarily O2 in those tanks. What if it's just cleaner air? But no, because O2 in those tanks are compressed. It's not like it's just a tank full of air. It's compressed. Maybe they've got some sort of air compressor that puts air into tanks like that, and then they just swap them out. So it's not O2, 
it's just air, but they still have a compressing machine yeah. to load it into the tanks. It's filtered air. And when you look at Rictus, he's got air filters up at the top of his backpack. So it could be that there's a little miniaturized air pump on his backpack, either a hand pump or some sort of little mechanical pump somehow. Maybe he's able to pull in air around him through those filters and then it pressurizes into the tanks. And then there's a little actuator that just sprays the air into his nose. Hmm. I don't know. I think if you're going to have a setup like that, you'd be better off with a mask more like Joe's Mm -hmm. that like covers your whole face. Nasal cannulas work because when you're breathing in that oxygen through a cannula, it's not the only air you're breathing in. You're breathing in through your nose. You're just getting a little bit of oxygen added to it. Hmm. I think if we ever get a chance to sit down with Dr. Miller, we can talk about cannulas and compressed air and stuff like that. I think you'd be able to talk shop with him a little bit. (laughs) So as Rictus runs off to go check and see what's bothering Joe, Corpus returns to his telescope because he's got to keep an eye on the situation. He's got to keep up to date on what's going on. A quick note about this telescope. It's quite the hodgepodge. It's got a lot of viewfinders up at the top. Yeah, I think those are different magnifications. Like they can be swung down into place to see different distances and be able to focus at different distances. But they are definitely all found objects. This isn't from a set of lenses. So last time I used a telescope like this that had the little side piece on it, the side piece is a weaker magnification, so that way you can better point your telescope at a general area. So you use the little telescope on the side to, say, point the telescope at the moon, and then once you've got it more or less lined up, then you move to the other eyepiece, and then you get the really magnified version. Because if you're going through fully magnified from the beginning... It's going to take you a long time to find what you're looking for, kind of like what we saw with Joe when we were looking through the eyepiece with him. It took him a while to go from the road across the landscape and eventually find the rig. Yeah. And it was a bunch of blurry landscape in between the road and the rig. Yeah, he floundered a little bit. Like, if he'd been using one of those little side telescopes, it would have been a lot broader looking, but he would have been able to better dial in exactly where he was looking. There really don't need to be that many. Even if each one was a different level of magnification, at some point it's just overkill, which really, isn't that just the Immortan Joe aesthetic? Yes. (laughs) I think they do things because they can, not Mm. because they need to. Do they really need the doof wagon? No, but they can, so they do. It's very much a status symbol. And so perhaps for Colossus, who is more intellectually minded... It's a status symbol for him to have, first of all, this fancy chair that allows him mobility and to have this telescope that allows him to see the world. I can imagine a JFK inspired Morton Joe. We do these things not because they are efficient, but because they are garish. (laughs) My JFK is awful, by the way. Yeah, which is funny because you're from the same part of the country. I know. I should be able to drop into that accent. Yeah, which you do all the time. Only around certain people. Your father. He brings it out in me. What can I say? <laughs> so I have one coworker who has a very thick Massachusetts accent. And we were sitting around at lunch. And another one of my coworkers made a comment about the Massachusetts accent. And the one with the accent was like, what accent? 
And we both agree that if you don't know what the Massachusetts accent sounds like, it means you have it. (laughs) We catch up with Joe as he's running through one of his hydroponic growing rooms. And considering that there's a lot of green on top of the Citadel, I can only assume that this is only one of many rooms. Yes, my assumption as well is that this is a massive operation. He has, with great power, comes great responsibility. If you are going to have a vault full of wives and a room full of milking mothers and all of these war boys and then all the war pups, those people are all now your responsibility. You have to feed them. So yeah, you better have a pretty good operation going on. So I was trying to find a good explanation of what hydroponics is. So I found a website. It's fullbloomhydroponics.net and they have this little 101 page where they get the basics of hydroponics and it says that hydroponics by definition is a method of growing plants in a water-based nutrient-rich solution. Hydroponics does not use soil. Instead, the root system is supported using an inert medium such as perlite, rock wool, clay pellets, peat moss, or vermiculite. The basic premise behind hydroponics is to allow the plant roots to come in direct contact with the nutrient solution while also having access to oxygen, which is, of course, essential for proper growth. So each one of these troughs, as it moves up and down in the room to allow sunlight to hit the leaves, these plants are sitting in an inert substance flooded with nutrient-rich liquid. I don't know how they're getting a nutrient-rich liquid unless... They're somehow using a combination of water and mother's milk because those are two things that they have in abundant supply. That's an interesting idea. I don't even know really what to say about that. I have no theories about that possibly working or no way that could work. I have no idea. It's the only way that I can think of growing food in an area where the soil is poison. Because there's a reason that people aren't growing things out in the wasteland. It's because the soil's bad. So whatever soil they have here at the Citadel... To grow stuff on top of the spires is one thing, but to grow otherwise, you got the hydroponics set up. Mm-hmm. Which, considering that you can stack them like this, is a much more efficient use of room. Oh, yeah. I love this room. I think it's fascinating. This whole system where they can be raised and lowered so that everybody gets time in the sun. I think that's fascinating. It makes me wonder, this raising and lowering motion, if it's somehow automated I think it was the Dave and Busters at the giant mall in Rhode Island. Yeah. Where all of the ceiling fans were on a belt system, where each ceiling fan was connected via a leather belt to the system next to it, and there was one motor driving all of the ceiling fans. That's right. I remember that. And I gotta wonder, is that the setup for here, or is there a war boy in the corner who's constantly turning this crank day in and day out? to keep these things rolling. I really could go either way. We've seen evidence of the use of manual labor, human power, with the big elevator, and that's quite a feat. I mean, I know that it was a very sophisticated contraption run by a lot of people, so I shouldn't be surprised, but it was quite a feat. Mm -hmm. Have we seen evidence of mechanically powered contraptions? Or have we just seen human powered but i mean they have engines they have internal combustion engines and there's probably engines running the giant cranes on top of the citadel but they also have windmills so some of those processes could be attached to wind power 
Yes. The smartest thing is have a variety of power sources. Right. You never want to put all your eggs in one basket. No. There's this cool idea that exists of taking excess energy that's produced by wind and solar and using that to take a weight of some kind like giant cinder blocks or water or something. And you use that excess energy to put those heavy things high up. And then when the wind dies down or the sun goes down, then you just take that heavy stuff and you attach it to a power generator and you just let them pull the line through the generator. It's a battery. Exactly. You're turning that kinetic energy into electrical energy. Yep. And I think it was Neil deGrasse Tyson who was really popped up on the whole hydro idea where you use your excess energy, you pump all your water up, and then you let it fall down through a turbine. And there's another design company who wants to try something. I don't know where they want to build it. Probably like Taiwan or something like that. But it's a series of cranes where when there's excess energy, the cranes pick these blocks up and they build them into a tower. And then when the solar and wind dies down, they pick up those blocks and just let them slowly fall down and it runs a generator just like I was talking about. And they certainly have the height available to them to store lots and lots of energy with methods like those. Yeah. And no matter what you think of Immortan Joe and his cult, they're not dumb. They seem like they have quite a bit of ingenuity. Now, granted, this whole gravity-driven power system, Mm -hmm. like they've been doing that for hundreds of years. That's how they used to do cuckoo clocks. Right. So why wouldn't they adapt something like that for the Citadel? It just makes a lot of sense. Like you said, diversify. Yeah, diversify. Why oppress only one group of people when you can oppress many groups of people? (laughs) The Immortan Joe promise. Speaking of things that are oppressive, there is a giant steel vault door bolted into the side of this cave. Yeah, did you notice how bright and shiny it is? Yeah. How new it looks? I don't think that this is a relic of the people who were here prior. No. I think this is something that he installed. This is something that Joe would hear about it. He would send out a butt ton of war boys and say, bring me back this. And then the war boys would then have to figure out, okay, how do we find it? How do we remove it? How the heck do we install it? The engineering and manpower that must have been required to move this thing into the Citadel is outrageous. Yeah. Because, yeah, there's no way this was here before Joe showed up. Yeah. It's far too new. I do like the contrast. As Joe is running through the hydroponics room, we get these views of this extensive system. And we're like, wow, things are so green and plentiful. And then in the same room, we change points of view to this very stark, plain stone wall with a vault door in Mm -hmm. it. There is no more green. There is... No more amazement or anything to spark any kind of joy. It's just this vault door. And so he puts down his scepter and he starts spinning the thing and opening the door and pulling it because this thing is massive. And behind the vault door is a tunnel, which Joe then passes through. We don't get to see what's on the other end of this tunnel, though, because the minute cuts off. I am struck by the length of this tunnel. That's how thick the wall is. Yeah. This room is not just on the other side of a wall, the way 
our bedroom is just on the other side of that wall. It's not the same kind of relationship. This is a, what would you say, like maybe 20 feet, 10, 15 feet thick? I'd say 10 to 15. 10 to 15? Yeah. This is a fortified room. This is a prison. Absolutely. But then also on the juxtaposition, you get this very serious door and this very serious tunnel. And the only thing really that we can see on the other side is a piano and a chandelier, which is again in stark contrast to this door in this tunnel. So everyone is just going to have to come back on Friday because we're going to go inside the sanctuary here that Morton Joe has set up. This is where he's going to house his wives, but there's just one problem. There are no wives. And the woman who is there doesn't really seem all that keen on helping Joe out. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 14 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time.